1: Welcome back to Jurassic Park Minute. Jurassic Park Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1993 film Jurassic Park Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we are lucky enough to be joined by a uh, a titan of the Jurassic Park podcasting community, if you will, Mr. Uh, Brad Jost from the Jurassic Park Podcast. Brad, how are you doing this evening?
0: Wow, I'm I'm doing pretty good, especially after calling me a titan. That's pretty awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it's a fitting title uh, because uh, you know, so, uh, probably a lot of our guests are aware. Uh, you've been hosting a Jurassic Park podcast for quite some time now, haven't you?
0: Uh, yeah. Since actually just before um, Jurassic World came out, so not too too long, but I do it weekly, so it, it ends up being a lot. Yeah.
2: Yeah. At the uh, at the time of this recording, I think you just made episode eighty five. Did I? Yeah, I don't know. I I lose track. (laughs) No, it was awesome. I I actually listened to it last night. I was on a road trip and you were covering the uh, Lost World uh, toy line. Oh, yes. Man, talk about some memory lane action right there. It was really cool. I know.
0: I know, right? Like, that's the thing. We try to break down those toys and every aspect of the movies. But when we get into this toy discussion, it's it's awesome. And we just go on probably way too long.
2: Oh, no, 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 no such thing. No such thing. yeah dorks like us we, we understand that we appreciate that
1: of course Jurassic <laughs> Park is one of those lines that uh, a lot like Star Wars I think had this like cross-platform appeal one of the things that made Star Wars so great was not only the movies were fantastic but uh, it really kind of hit at the time that action figures were kind of starting to get big uh, with young you know with young men with boys and stuff like that and Jurassic Park equally had a fantastic action figure line uh, that came out what were your thoughts on the uh, the stuff that came out for Jurassic World a couple of years ago
0: Oh, you had to go and ask that, didn't you? (laughs) Like, I mean, you're talking about how good the other stuff is, and then bring up Jurassic World toys, and yeah. Uh... Not too good. You know, it's a shame. You know, Hasbro had the line there for, for Jurassic World. And, you know, it's just full of screw holes and cheap plastic, stuff that feels like it's going to break instantly. Um, and You know, half the yeah. toys feel like they're already broken in the aisle when you're standing in front of them. So it's it's a real shame. And, and the paint jobs are, are really poor. But, um, you know, they, they handed it over to Mattel. So hopefully, you know, within a new movie coming out, you know, in the next uh, year or so, it, it'll, you know, produce something
2: really great. You know, what's strange, too, is that I, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think, outside of the Chronicle collectibles, there were no action figures of, like, the human characters. Uh, it was just the dinosaurs, which is funny because um, the, the previous movie installments weren't really driven on their actors. Uh, and Jurassic World is just, you know, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, which is awesome. He's great in the movie. So you think that they would have capitalized on their big star and actually made a, uh, an action figure of that character. And, you know, to my knowledge, it never happened with their, with their general toy line.
0: Well, yeah, that that's pretty true. I mean, that at the last second they came out with like their their new hybrid line, and they actually introduced a uh, one Owen figure. It was really bad, <laughs> and I oh, really? yeah, I actually didn't buy it upon like its initial release because it was like twenty bucks for this really terrible motorcycle and uh, blue Raptor. It was like a very cheaply made, and and uh, so I actually just bought it like a few weeks ago for like two like a few bucks and uh actually my copy has no head it's so strange i was oh, like really? hey target can i take a few bucks off of this because owen doesn't have a head like so it's so <laughs> cheaply made that this stuff just comes apart in the store
2: yeah that's a shame
0: but yeah you're right uh, the other ones were, weren't really driven by their actors but yet they have the best like action figures and dinosaurs and everything
2: oh yeah definitely definitely well uh do you guys want to go ahead and get into the minute
1: yeah, we can go ahead and, uh, and, and jump right into it here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you guys are ready, we'll go ahead and do it.
2: Let's, Let's do, it. do it. In the previous minute, John Hammond and Ellie Sattler discussed the illusion of control inherent in Hammond's pursuit. As the minute ended, Ellie told Hammond that while she was overwhelmed by the power of Jurassic Park, control never existed. At 88 minutes, Ellie tells John that she made a mistake in not trusting the power of Jurassic Park. And now that power is out. Ellie tells Hammond that Alan, Lex, and Tim are still out in the park where people are dying. At 88 minutes and 24 seconds, there is a long pause as Hammond reflects on what Ellie has said. At 88 minutes and 31 seconds, she takes a bite of the ice cream that Hammond was eating. She tells him that it's good. The two sit at the table in silence before Hammond tells Ellie that he spared no expense. At 88 minutes and 47 seconds, we cut to a shot of Alan, Tim, and Lex asleep in the tree. Soft music begins to swell as a brachiosaurus head comes into frame and eats some foliage off the tree. And thus ends minute 88 of Jurassic Park.
1: So when I saw this originally and upon multiple viewings, I don't, and you know, Brady, we've discussed this on the previous episode with John Hammond talking about the flea circus and everything. The emotional resonance I think that they were going for in the scene hadn't really hit me until I went back and rewatched. These minute by minute episodes, you know, of Ellie talking about the seductive nature of the power of Jurassic Park, and, you know, John Hammond is driven to continue to have control over everything. I, I think for some reason, this kind of landed with an emotional thud for me previously, whereas now I'm watching it, I'm getting a little bit more caught up in basically probably the themes of what's going on in jurassic park is making a little bit more sense to me so yeah. i want to ask you guys about this scene in particular for you did it did this ever accomplish kind of the shortcomings of john hammond's whole plan here did this brad when you when you watch this not maybe not as 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 a younger uh, brad jost but uh in your more adult age did this kind of did the scene maybe resonate with you a little bit more
0: oh my god yes totally and uh you know as i've gotten older i've you know, become a huge fan of theme parks in general and stuff like that. So I tend to see these flaws a lot more, you know, as the time has gone on. And to me, John Hammond, in this moment, it's like the first time you actually realize he's delusional. And I don't know how much yeah. you talked about this in previous uh, the previous minutes here, but... He is so delusional, and the fact that he thinks that there could possibly be a next time, you know, while people are out there dying or dead already, uh, it's just crazy. And, and you see that shock on his face when somebody kind of talks back to him in a way, like Laura Dern is just really right. giving it to him, and she is so incredible. But, um, yeah, it didn't really hit me as a kid, but as an adult, you, you fully understand it.
2: You know, I I remember as a kid, understanding that there was something personal and something deep going on here, but that was, that was kind of, you know, where it stopped my understanding of it. And now Richard Attenborough is just so damn good in this movie and his uh, performance is all over the place here. He is delusional and you can tell that it's, that drive is almost coming from a good place deep down inside, but, and he's totally overlooking the fact that his grandkids are out there right now, possibly dead, possibly dino food. And, and, probably in fact, but, um, but he, uh, you know, once she kind of breaks him off and just really, you know, puts him in his place, you can see that it, it's all resonated in him. And he is starting to consider the fact that it, she is right and it is over. And he's just got this very, um, sympathetic, uh, tone going throughout the rest of the scene. And I've actually got a note about how this is sort of the, um, the turning point for that character. And up until this point in the movie we've seen him as the you know just driven happy-go-lucky guy who's just he's got it all figured out and then in this scene he um you know he's really hit with the truth of it all and after this he is a go-getter he's all about you know people are dying we've got to get the power back on so we can get the hell out of here still some delusion there of course but uh i really think that this is the turning point for him in, in the movie is this particular minute
1: Yeah, I really like something about this minute. It plays counterpoint to the scene earlier in the film where they're all sitting around Alejandro serving the the sea bass, and they're talking about the potential of the promise of Jurassic Park. You know, they're sitting there, uh, you know, this beautiful food laid out in front of them, and they're talking about, you know, uh, the rides that are going to be coming online, and, you know, John Hammond asks for every expert's opinion on everything, and he's very knee-jerk and defensive over their critiques of the park, whereas in this scene, we've got the electricity turned off, he's eating this ice cream so it won't go bad, and it's just just Ellie Sattler sitting there, like, giving him, you know, what for about the failings of the park. You know, she cuts him off short when he's like, next time, you know, we've relied too much on Nidri. The automation is the problem. Next time, I'm going to do it right. Next time, you know, we'll do Jurassic Park right. And she's basically like, John, there's no next time. Like, you, you screwed up and stumbled out of the gate, and people died because of that. You know, this is, you had your one chance, you screwed it up, and everything is you know the illusion is dropped now i think is the term she kind of talks about the illusion of jurassic park really being like blinders on her here but i i love how it's instead of them eating around this table being served like you know wonderful sea bass they're eating ice cream that's melting you know Uh, (laughs) but I, i think that there's a conscious effort i'm sure on the part of steven spielberg to kind of play those two scenes against each other but um yeah, it you know, was it, it was kind of funny to me how like this always even as a younger person watching this movie, I never really got what this scene was about. And it just kind of, I guess, maybe had to go through some things in life, and you know, have experiences like John Hammond's had, where things don't exactly come together, and you're kind of sitting there, you know, with your melting ice cream, kind of looking at like what you did wrong, and having to kind of come to <laughs> no, terms with anymore. that. Yeah, I'm sure we've probably yeah. all been, you know, in in that moment. But it's, it's it's a it's you really have to. It's a humiliating experience to be in that situation.
2: There's there's something interesting going on here, and in the last minute, where um, we we see John Hammond in this uh dining room sort of in this little lie that he this little scenario that he's kind of concocted for himself where he's just going to sit down and eat in this beautiful dining room and basically have his last little moment of this all worked and there's something really subtle that's been done here now i know the power's out so you're going to have to find lighting sources from from you know other places but that room's well enough lit that he didn't have to do this but you can see that he's lit some candles over in the corner and i think he's kind of putting together this little um uh scene for himself so that he can just sit there by himself and live in that dream for just a little while longer and the last thing that we see this john hammond uh like i was saying earlier before this turning point the last thing we hear him say is spare no expense you know we spared no expense and that was his entire sentiment towards everything and that's sort of the last time that we see him as the john hammond that was and uh even in the lost world when he comes back i think his um He's not quite as he's delusional. and his system of going about getting done what he needs to get done is pretty stupid, sending very few people in, you know, with no <laughs> weapons or anything. but he uh, but it's still, you know to to make sure that the place is turned into a preserve and everything. So this is an interesting minute uh, in you know, in terms of this very interesting character. so
0: yeah, he uh, he's so depressed at that last moment, the last shot of him in this scene. He's just like, Spared no expense. Like, it's yeah. just so quiet, so different than you're used to hearing him say it. And uh, in isolation, just viewing this minute alone, it makes him seem even crazier almost because mm-hmm. Ellie is, like I said, really giving it to him. And then it keeps, you know, panning back towards him. And he's just like, he's not saying anything. He's not doing anything. He's just staring off. And uh, I found that really funny. But But overall, you know... Ellie is talking about respect. And, uh, you know, that is something that John didn't have. And I think it's kind of built really off that that uh, initial quote by Malcolm earlier in the movie. You know, he's, he says, uh, you know, you stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something, you know, as fast as you could. And before you even knew it, you patented it, you packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. And, you know, you know how it goes. But it's it's about respect and and they before they thought about it, they didn't, you know, check the fact that they're not paying their employees enough for, mm-hmm. for you know, uh, Nedry to go and and you know, trash the whole thing or structural integrity of the park itself or the buildings or the the fences, um, backup generators, locks on the vehicle doors. Like, he just didn't have that respect that Ellie is talking about throughout this scene.
2: Yeah. You know, she also makes, makes mention of the fact that, you know, I was overwhelmed by the power of this place and that power is out now. Now, I've always read this line as though she's saying the power that she felt when she witnessed it all for the first time is gone. She's just that uh, overwhelming impression that it made on her is gone. But I'm also over the years thought about, like, maybe she's talking about the actual power of the place, the electricity. Um, what do you guys take of that?
1: I, I think it's, it's possible that it's kind of supposed to be like an entendre. You know, it, it means both of them at the same time. I mean, I think clearly she's talking about the, the, um, the illusion of control there, that the dinosaurs would stay that. behind their electrical fences, that that's, you know, it's, but it means both things at the same time. The power is literally out and figuratively out at the same time. They have no control over these dinosaurs. <laughs> They're not going to stay in their paddocks. Also, the ice cream's melting because the refrigerators have turned off. You know, so it, it, it works. It works on two levels, and it's actually, I think, um, some some pretty great writing. You know, and, and Brad, you know, you were just talking about the scene a second ago where Malcolm, you know, is pounding on the table talking about patenting everything and put, you know, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Fantastic line. This is as well. This whole scene is re- really well written. It just, I think, it's one of those things that you know, when we get back to the point I was saying earlier, that I had to kind of grow into maturity to really understand uh, what she was talking about. Because Brady, I think. Like you're saying, when I saw this as a kid, I literally thought she was talking about the power. You know, that they all had uh, had to have too much respect for the um, uh, you know, the electrical currents going through the place. But, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think I think it works on it works on both levels, and that's a, a a sign of really good writing as well.
2: Definitely. Um, that's another thing. You know, I've made mention of before so many times on the show is the uh, you know, David Cap and Michael Crichton and um. I cannot remember her name at this moment. They're one of the initial writers of the screenplay. Uh, The fact that they did blend action and, you know, dinosaur adventure and all of that with moments like this where you're you just have two adults sitting around talking about ethics and ideals. And um, and it, it works perfectly in this movie where it shouldn't otherwise work, really. Uh, yeah,
1: and you know um, this this may not I don't know if this really uh, ties in with what you're saying but we've read that one of Steven Spielberg's favorite films is the seven uh, Kira Kurosawa's the seven samurai and before he makes any film he goes and he sits down and he watches it again and that's a movie to me that blends perfectly entertainment with philosophy you know uh, like a lot of Kurosawa stuff like Sanjuro and Yojimbo did the same way it, they, they talk they have like deep thematic philosophical themes that you don't have to understand or get to enjoy the action or the character moments in the movie as well. And I think that yeah. Jurassic Park, the more I've watched it, the older I've gotten. I've really started to buy into that, you know like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein type subtext to the movie, you know, the whole the, the science fiction you can't control nature, you know, man's folly type thing. And uh, I yeah. think that, you know, like like Kurosawa did in those movies, I think Spielberg kind of got in there and said, okay, we can have it be an entertainment film, but we can also have subtext to it at the same time. And I think that subtext really, plays better in this scene uh, than I, well, especially tying into John's character and his flaws uh, than it does in just about any other scene of the movie. But, you know, it's it's great because it's really, it's sandwiched here between a lot of action, too. You know, we were talking last week about, after coming out of the Jeep scene with the Tyrannosaurus Rex, that there's a like a about a, a what, like maybe 10-15 minute chunk of this movie that's just dealing with characters, and it's also dealing with the plot and subtext and stuff like that. And this is really kind of the, the core I think of that of that little 15 minute stretch is right here in this the you know, 3 or 4 minutes of Ellie and uh, Hammond sitting at the table talking about this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know as much as this is a dinosaur movie, I think these are the moments that I like the best. Yeah. You know, because definitely. they take that time to explain things and develop their characters and and talk about things that you necessarily don't, you know, expect from a movie. And uh, it, it's a shame that movies don't really do that nowadays. It's all about you know getting a, the most you can for your money and and cramming as much in as possible. You know Jurassic World has that fault as well. Um, I, I personally like the movie, but yes, it, it is overpacked. You know with with action elements. Um, not this film though, and, and I kind of like that about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Brad, yeah, Brad, to to expand on what you're saying there, I have a question for you. Do you feel that? maybe some of the failings of of the other sequels the lost world and Jurassic Park 3 might have been because they were trying to tie back in into the just the dinosaur stuff
0: um you know no i feel like uh Jurassic Park 3 maybe but the lost world for me um it has that same element and there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of quieter scenes and and uh the moments where there's no soundtrack in the background those are the ones that stand out to me i love john williams obviously but but I, I kind of like those moments where you can just listen to them talk and debate and do this stuff. Like, yeah. I, I really like that. So I don't think The Lost World failed in that. But, yeah, Jurassic Park 3 definitely was like, we're starting here. We're going to get to the end in a, in an hour and 30 minutes and be done. And then, you know, that's it. So it's all about the dinosaurs at that point.
1: Yeah, it, you know, and sometimes in films that kind of stuff can be done at um... – the French Connection is one of my favorite films and that movie is almost nothing but chase the entire time. Uh, but I think what makes that film work is it's also a character movie along the way. You've got, you know, the character of Popeye Doyle who is is, is just fun to watch. You know, you've got... Um, uh, some great actors in those parts too and I felt like Jurassic Park 3 while it tried to be chased the whole time in non-stop action it really failed on the character level too you know it, yeah. it, it well it maybe it didn't succeed to its full promise you know but uh, I do think there are some very enjoyable moments in that movie though it, it does succeed somewhat in the chase but ultimately it probably could have used some some more quiet moments where they were talking about maybe the uh, the purity of nature and man's place in the food chain or something like that
0: you know there's, there's there's one good moment like that when they're on the boat as they're trying to, you know, escape towards towards the end of the movie. And Grant is talking with Eric about like astronauts and astronomers like that's one of those moments that you feel is is straight out of Jurassic Park. You know, it yeah. it has that feeling. It has the heart and it kind of develops their characters a little bit more. But I feel like these movies are just a sign of the times. You know, like the, this is these are movies of the 90s. Uh, Jurassic Park 3, it's definitely like, you know, it's coming into the 2000s. So the movies change at that point. And Jurassic World is like, you know, full on, you know, what the movies are today. So I think it's all about when they came out.
2: That's true. That's very true. I, I never really put together the geography of the visitor center and where we are uh, until I started thinking about later when the kids are in the same room, the dining room, they're eating the jello and the sweets and all that. And then they spot the raptor coming in. They're immediately in the – they immediately run into the kitchen, and there's that circular window and everything, and the freezer is mysteriously opened. And I put it together only recently that (laughs) – that's because John went in there to get the ice cream, left the freezer open, and then came back out into the dining room. And that door in the back with that circular window has got to be – which is kind of lit up, and it's a little deliberate, and it's almost like you're being forced to notice it. Yeah. And I think that's him saying like this is how – you know where that's going to come into play later. So, or anyway, for you two who have made that connection when that moment comes later in the movie. Yeah, never really yeah, that- thought about that before.
0: No, you know, I, I love that fact that when you realize, like, that's why the door's open and he's got all his ice cream out there. But, yeah, that you definitely see that that room in the back, like, just calling to you, like, what's next?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. but
0: that room in general, like, the cafeteria, uh, it's amazing. Like, if you just take a second to look at the background, I mean, you've already seen the uh, the Parasaurolophus, like, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, not stained glass, but something like that along the, like, maybe the, I think the right side of the room. And then behind Hammond, you get this amazing like mural. It's amazing. Oh art. yeah, it's mural. Like, and you don't get to look at it too closely or too often. But that second, you know, pause it and look because it's amazing artwork.
2: Yeah, and if you look at the uh, chairs at the tables, they're kind of shaped, made to look like bamboo and things like that. Some really nice details in here. You're right.
0: Yeah. Um, It looks like um, a legit place like that. There's like a, like um, a stone wall right next to the door to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And there's like, you see fans in the ceiling. Like, so it's legit. You feel like you could go there and visit it like the rest of the park.
1: It's opulent. Some might say that they spared no expense even.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They did a a great job with details like that and making it feel like you say, Brad, a a real place or some, something in a real theme park. Um, Jurassic world got that very, very, very much right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, the, you know, there are little details like that. On the buffet, up by that uh, wall behind him with the big mural, um, there is some kind of yellow rock or something yeah. coming up in the middle of the table. What the hell is that? Do you guys know? I don't know.
0: I, I was trying to, to get a glimpse of that before, too. I, I didn't know exactly what it could be.
2: Yeah. Um, Maybe it's something to do with amber. I don't know. I thought-
0: Yeah, I thought maybe Amber. At one point, I was like, What is that a swan neck or something? Like, I didn't even know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that'd be terrible. A giant (laughs) melting ice swan or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, it looks very strange. But yeah, Amber maybe, or, you know, some sort of uh, giant blow pop. I don't know. It's really <laughs> weird that, that. sometimes you that. know
1: you you probably had a set decorator who spent weeks working on that thing, you know, saying like, "Oh, this is you know my <laughs> my my signature calling card in the film, and it'll be here, and you know everybody will get to see it. it'll be a centerpiece of the film." Nah, it's just yeah. out of focus the whole time.
0: <laughs> well, you ha- you'll have to take a closer look when when they're eating off the
2: the buffet table there later on. See what, see if you can
0: see what it is.
2: Yeah. Um, before we get into the next uh, sequence in this in this minute. Um, so you said that the the painting uh, of the raptor on the wall in the background that we later see like the shadow coming through. What is that? I've always wondered how the sh- the is behind there, but it's still casting a shadow through a wall. Is it stained glass or... I
0: just, yeah, I assume it's some sort of glass, you know, it, it's <laughs> kind of like, uh, yeah, I, yeah, so I guess a stained glass. I don't know what other kind of glasses there are, but <laughs> I'm <laughs> no glass expert here, so... <laughs>
1: huh. I guess it could be also a mural that's painted on the glass with light coming through the other side, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I had always taken it that the, the shadow of the raptor was coming like from the side, off to the side, or something like that. But uh, um, I mean, could I a, could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I always assume yeah. the other side. So we do have well, one uh, little uh, more sequence here, Brady, you just talked about the last 13 seconds of this are cut to uh, yeah. you know Dr. Alan Grant sleeping in the tree and the brachiosaurus head coming in uh, to eat some foliage, and uh, I, I never really, I think, fully appreciated that that uh, they were able to get the, the brachiosaurus neck to crane in and then actually bite some foliage and pull it back, and I'm curious That's how many takes much. you guys think it took for them to get that right.
2: <laughs> well, here's, here's something I've noticed, and I remember noticing this when this movie was playing in theaters and when I first saw it as a little kid, not the very first time, but when it was, you know, one of the first like 20 times I saw it in the first like month it was out. Uh, and it's whenever the camera's pushing in on the tree and the, the group sleeping in the tree, up in the top left corner, you can see what is yes. like, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Oh, yeah. I know now the you netting. With, yeah, the netting. This kind of like camo netting or something like that. It's, it's like, guys, come on. <laughs> come on. So, well, Brady, I'm glad you guys We we yeah. have to remember this too.
1: The majority of the times you've seen this movie have been probably were in Pan and Scan on VHS before the DVDs came out. So you probably were looking at it in 4 by 3, not noticing that that stuff was actually up there. So I'm sure that when this movie came out, a high definition video was probably not something they were thinking about. They're probably thinking about, you know, people watching this in a 4 by 3 ratio. So that was I think those edges of the screen were cut out there. So they could, probably some shortcuts they could take and get away with there instead of actually paying for the fake foliage on the top. Seven.
0: Yeah. You know, I I actually went to go see this in the
1: theaters
0: uh, last summer, maybe, and um, I, I hadn't noticed it to the first time when I went to go see it in the theaters again. And I'm like, what is that? Like, That's the first time I noticed yeah. it. Like, I guess the definition was so great in that theater. It was giant, obviously. So it stood out a lot more than, you know, watching it on a TV at home.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's kind of funny how when, once you see it, your eye just always goes to it, too. You can't stop <laughs> looking yet. at it. There was a, a moment when the Tyrannosaurus Rex attack happens, and Brady was like, uh, it's so funny how you can always see that, that uh, stage light that's there during the attack. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? He was like, you don't know what I'm talking about? So he had to actually stop and show it to me. And now every time I watch that scene, I'm like, there it is. The stage light's yeah. just sitting
2: there. So. <laughs> have you seen that, Brad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that,
0: that yeah. scene does have you know a few little you know quirks here and there. Yeah.
2: But um, I tell you what, I don't have anything else for this minute. Do you guys? Uh,
1: no, and uh, I, I think it's probably coming uh, to the end of the show here. But uh, before we head out, and uh, we are going to have Brad back on for tomorrow's episode, minute number 89. Uh, Brad, could you let everybody know where they could find, uh, uh, find out more about you on the internet?
0: Well, uh, like I say on the podcast, we do most of our work on Twitter. So it's uh, at Jurassic Park Pod. Uh, my personal one is at Brad Jost. Uh, we also have uh, JurassicParkPodcast.com. We do new episodes every Monday, so we, we're always grabbing people from the community.
1: Got to have you guys
0: on there sometime soon. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah,
1: so that's where we do all our
0: stuff, and, and you can find all our updates there.
1: And it's cool. it's a fantastic podcast. I mean, you it's it's so well produced. Uh, it's it's always a blast to listen to it. And you guys uh, have some some fantastic content over there. I don't know how you keep it such a high bar of quality on a weekly basis. Is really something uh, that a lot of podcasts should strive to. And you guys really achieve it. So,
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much. I got to give uh, give it to Brad here. So everybody knows that with um, our minute breakdowns the binarial audio that we have of the jungle sounds which are actually jungle sounds from the movie i got that idea from you Brad because you have like the jungle sounds playing underneath a lot of the a large portion of your shows sometimes yeah. and i remember hearing that and being like i have got to rip that off <laughs> so i stood on the shoulders of that genius and uh did what i could but that's all oh, i have for this movie. Awesome. <laughs>
1: All right, folks. So we are going to go ahead and get out of here then. And we, like I said earlier, Brad uh, is going to be back on tomorrow. So uh, if you enjoyed what you heard today, and I'm sure you did, go join us again tomorrow. So thanks again, Brad, for, for joining us. We look forward to having you back tomorrow.
0: No problem. Can't wait.
1: All right, everybody. Well, we will see you tomorrow. Uh, for Brad and for Brady, I'm Kyle. And until next time,
2: hold on to your butts. Jurassic Park Minute is a fan-supported podcast. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at JurassicParkMinute at gmail.com and visit us online at JurassicParkMinute.com, Facebook.com slash JurassicParkMinute, and Twitter.com slash JurassicMinute. You've been listening to a Pele Media podcast. For premium content and exclusive podcasts, visit us at patreon.com slash Media. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Pele